sometimes mentees show up and say, a mentor, tell me the wisdom, almost like Yoda and Luke Skywalker. And, and yeah, Yoda is the guide and Luke is the hero, but the mentee does need to drive the agenda to say, hey, here's what I want to talk to you about. Welcome to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Connors. NetworkWise trains and educates individuals and organizations in the science and art of networking to accelerate sales, personal development, and career opportunities. In Conversations with Connors, I talk with a variety of highly successful individuals in order to gain insights on how they built, maintain, and cultivated their relationships in order to live a life by design, not by default. Today, we have the opportunity to sit down with Michael O'Brien, TEDx speaker and author of My Last Bad Day. To put him in a box and just label him as an author or speaker would be doing this great man a disservice. So I'm just going to freestyle a few adjectives that I can think of that best describe him. He's thoughtful, sincere, empathetic, vulnerable, a recovering control freak, a good listener, a generous person, a fighter that's resilient, and just a good freaking guy. Michael was kind enough to come to the studio and share his inspiring story about how he flipped the script, turned bad luck into good luck, and made his quote-unquote story into a transformative experience. As Michael would tell you, it's not what happens to you in life, rather how you react to it. Very few people have the fortitude and the right mental facilities to do what he did, but he doesn't believe that. They just need to tap into it, and he's the man that can help them do that through his executive coaching business that helps people achieve new milestones. Throughout our conversation, we discuss the importance of relationships, mentors, and putting the right people in your peloton. I like his approach and style behind his coaching methods, and after listening to our conversation, I'm confident that you will too. So sit back and enjoy my conversation with my friend, Michael O'Brien. So we're going to have some fun today. I'm excited to learn your story. I'm excited cool. to share your story. Oh, well, thank you. I uh, look forward to it. It's, it's a pretty powerful one. Why don't we start where it began on that day in July? Well, so July 11, 2001, affectionately mm-hmm. call it my last bad day. And that morning I was out in New Mexico for a company offsite meeting. And I should have been a little wary at first being out in New Mexico in the middle of July. But we went out there, it was a typical fly in on Monday, fly back on Friday, and in between they were gonna kill us with PowerPoint, like just torture, right? So a typical offsite meeting. And I decided to bring my bike out because I was training for a bike race coming up that Sunday. I was getting back into cycling after having our second daughter. She was seven months old at the time. And I thought, hey, I'm gonna be really smart. I'll go out, I'll bring my bike, I'll avoid the hotel gym get some exercise in. I'll be the smartest guy in the room. Like I will be live in New Mexico. I'll cross New Mexico off the States. I've ridden my bike, made complete sense. Found a loop out the back of the hotel, up the main drag was two miles in length. Thought if I did 10 laps, 20 miles, I would have a really great workout. Start the day, because I'm a morning guy, start the day off with a lot of gusto. And on the fourth lap, I came around to bend and what was coming right at me was a speeding white Ford Explorer who crossed fully into my lane and I had nowhere to go except right into his grill. 
I remember, Adam, the sound of me hitting his grill, the sound I made as I went into his windshield, broke a hole in that, the screech of his brakes, and the thud I made as I came to the asphalt below after he came to a halting stop. And of course, one can imagine, your listeners will imagine, I got knocked unconscious then. But when the EMTs arrived, I regained my consciousness and I was in the world of pain. And I asked them a question only another cyclist can really appreciate. I asked them, how's "How's my bike? And they just looked at me with a little bit of um, puzzlement, questions, probably concern that I would ask that type of question in that given moment. That's really funny. So I have a friend that had a crash, not like yours, but he broke his femur and I think he dislocated his shoulder and he looked like hell. And that was the first thing that he, because he was knocked out also, but that was the first thing that he said, which I, it blows my mind. Yeah. So us cyclists have this like weird fascination with like scars and injuries in our bikes. So we're all like, it's the first question that another cyclist will always ask, how's my bike? And of course I had to ask it. I didn't know the extent of my injuries, but I broke almost everything. Like your friend, I shattered my left femur, I broke my right femur. And when the left femur shattered, it lacerated the femoral artery of my left leg. So in essence, I was in the process of bleeding out in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico. The doctors had told my wife later at the hospital, had I been 10 years older or not healthy, I probably would have passed away before I even got to the hospital. My gosh. Yeah. So walk me through, you saw this coming, did it happen in slow motion? Like time slowed down? Time slowed way down, like if anyone's been in a car crash, right, everything slows down. So I came around the bend and was right there. And the thing I said to myself is like, surely he will see me. Surely he will see me. He's going to move. He's going to move. He's going to move. He's going to move. Oh, what? He's not moving. And I tried my best to get off and ditch the bike, but I just ran out of real estate. What were your alternatives? I couldn't go left because he was sort of coming right at me. So I thought that was probably a bad move because I thought he was going to turn back into his lane. So going left, I said, no good, no bueno, don't do that. I could have gone right and into the ditch, but I just couldn't react fast enough because the whole thing was surreal. It was just slow, slowed down immensely and I just ran out of time. Like I almost missed it. Like where I, in my book, there's some photos. So where people will see where I made impact, I was only a few inches away from missing him. I just, if I had another five seconds, maybe I miss him. How fast was he going? About 40 miles an hour, according to the police. Mm -hmm. And they- And how fast were you going? I was was going about 19, 20. So you have 40, so it becomes a physics experiment. 40 miles an hour this way, 20-ish miles per hour going that way. And then the collision was like awesome, not like in size and sound, but not necessarily in results. And the Ironman watch, the Timex watch I was wearing broke off and flew like 25 feet, like the other direction. That's how much energy was in the collision. Wow. Tell me about the driver. So the driver had a revoke license. He, He had five DUIs on his New Mexico state driver's license. But where they put the resort, it was a classic one of these resorts in the middle of nowhere. And this is before we did a lot of casinos on Native American property. So a casino is now built there. But he was speeding to work to set up for the meeting that I was attending. We were the only company at this hotel. He was late. 
and he was cutting the apex of the turn. He was speeding. The speed limit on that stretch of road was only about 25 miles per hour. He was going about 40. So the glass, when I hit his windshield and the glass blew out, glass went into his face. He was injured. He was in shock. I was there lying, waiting for the helicopter to take me to Albuquerque, trying to will myself not to fall asleep because I thought if I stay awake, I can control the situation, as crazy as that sounds. But he was off to the side. I later saw him like in time back when I had to come back for the sort of traffic court case. And that was really surreal because I was there in a small little courthouse. We were right next to each other, really unable to say anything to each other. Because at that point in time, I was still, as one can imagine, totally worked up about what had happened. I thought it was a little unfair that we were even there in the first place. What was his state of mind? What was his disposition during all of this? Well, so the whole impact and the glass popping into his face and he got cut up pretty badly. He was in shock. He didn't make any contact with me when I was there that I could remember. So he didn't try to help you? He didn't try to assist? No. So what happened was there was so many crazy things that happened that morning where it's like bad luck, good luck. Right. And so we can label our luck in a lot of different ways. Uh Right. So we'll get into that. Yeah. So bad luck at first glance, he hits me. Good luck. We were really close to the hotel, only about a quarter of a mile away. Other people were also using that road to come into work. So they called for help right away. And there were EMTs at the hotel. So the EMTs were on the spot in a matter of minutes. So when I regained consciousness, I was surrounded by people and emergency vehicles like ambulances and fire trucks. This sort of brought out the whole cavalry, you know, that morning. So I was very fortunate that help was right, like literally right around the bend. Had I not had that, my care would have been delayed. And this could be a completely different outcome. And we may not be sitting here together today. Mm. But even so, I mean, it's not like you were in a booming metropolis. Is there a, how far away was the hospital? How far would they have to do to get you there? So they took me on a helicopter, which I was not jazzed about because back then in 2001, I was terrified of flying. I was not a really good flyer, even like big jets, right? I was like the turbulence. But this was pre 9-11. Pre 9-11. So this is July 11th, 2001, two months away from 9-11. And I was not a great flyer and I'd never been in a helicopter. And they were like, here, Michael, we, we called the helicopter. We're 45 minutes at least away from Albuquerque. That was the only trauma one center in the state. So they were going to take me there. And Adam, I really tried to convince them, like, maybe the helicopter isn't a great great idea because I was nervous. And they're like, we need to get you on the helicopter. And so I remember every minute of those 19 minutes. Up until that point, I really did feel very lonely. I had all these people around me, but I didn't feel a connection. They were all doing their job. It was transactional. They were there to save my life. They did their job amazingly well, but I felt all alone. I got on that helicopter and that was really the first moment in that morning because I remember almost everything about that morning where I felt connected. I did not take my eyes off my flight nurse for every minute of those 19 minutes. I was on a backboard neck brace. I was all strapped up on a morphine drip and I just looked at her the whole time right into her eyes. And just, again, trying to will myself not to fall asleep because I didn't want to give up control. I had a little bit of a control thing back then before (laughs) my accident. Uh And then I remember landing on top of the 
roof at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, down the elevator into the trauma center. I met my surgeon and we said, hey, how you doing? Sorry to meet under these circumstances. And then I met my anesthesiologist. And then for the next four days and change, I don't remember anything. Really? Four days? Yeah. So the not what, yeah. yeah, what did they have to do? What did they have to repair? They left some just to let my body sort of heal on its own. So I shattered, I broke my right shoulder. So they didn't really fix that. So right femur, right tibia. But the big injury was the shattering of my left femur and the laceration of my femoral artery. So the first surgery took about 12 hours. I needed 34 units of blood product to save my life. What blood are you? I'm baby blood. I'm a universal donor. Wow. So what is that? AOO or? I think it's O. Actually, I don't know what it is. I think it's maybe O positive. Gotcha. But all I know is that the Red Cross loves me. Yeah. I never gave blood before my accident. Now I try to give blood as frequently as I can. Yeah, that's a lot of blood. That's a lot of blood. Yeah. <laughs> so that first surgery was all about fixing my left leg and my femoral artery tear. And then I was put in traction and in the ICU for four days. And then I came out of the ICU in traction with my right leg on a pulley system, not fixed yet. Something to look forward to. So I woke, and I woke up. They took me out of the ICU sort of in the middle of like off hours. So my wife wasn't there. My daughters weren't there. I was just by myself and I woke up and I'm like, where am I and what happened? But during the ICU, I did some crazy things. I told my wife, like, we should buy Amazon stock. It was trading for $15 a share back then. We did not buy it, Adam. So I have forgiven her for that. Uh-huh. I actually interviewed her for a job at my company for a sales rep. I went through the whole interview guide, all 45 minutes, and I didn't hire her. So she has forgiven me for that. But I said some wild stuff. I was prophetic other than Amazon. No, actually, well, one thing. I told her to go find this guy named David Kolb. And I was the type of guy that never talked about work at home. And so David was the first guy I knew who was an executive coach. I didn't even know that executive coaching was a thing, professional coaching back then. And he was the first guy. We had hired him six months prior to help our team and our co-promote with another pharmaceutical company. And I told my wife, go find David. He's our leader. He will show us the way. And, and did it, you have a relationship with him? Yeah, or? so, you know, I, I was the point person on my team that was managing the relationship with David, and he was serving as my coach, but also a team coach, much like some of the stuff you do and I do. Mm-hmm. And he left a mark somehow, some way, right? He, I just loved his vibe. I loved his energy. And when I came out of the ICU, she had all these copious notes written down on a notepad, and she's like, who's David. And I'm like, why are you asking me about David? Like, what's up with that? She goes, you kept on repeating his name. And I'm like, really? I'm like, well, he's our coach. And in that moment... And how many people were you responsible for? Uh, at the, the time? time, my team was a team of six, but the larger team on from my company was about 30. And then he had, on the other side of it, there was another 30 from our co-promote partner. So there was a total of like 60 people in these team building sessions. Wow. So that was pretty large. Yeah. But... David and I had that connection and we just hit it off. And I just sat in my hospital bed. I'm like, of all the people I could mention, I mentioned David's name. I go, that's a little weird, right? right? Weird in a really cool way. And I knew that was a seed that was planted. I didn't really know exactly what it was going to turn into, 
But over time, 13 years of watering and fertilizing and working with him still, I became an executive coach and sort of followed in his footsteps. Interesting. So walk me through, we're going to get back to that, but so you go through this rehabilitation. What's going through your mind during that time? Well, the beginning part of it, when I came out of the ICU, is one thing I didn't share with you. When I got on that helicopter, I told myself, hey, Michael, if you live, life is going to be different. You're going to stop chasing happiness because I did a really good job or maybe not such a great job of chasing happiness back before my accident. The whole, and you see this a lot in your work, the whole, I'll be happy when, I'll be happy when I get promoted. I'll be happy when I buy that new car. I'll be happy when this meeting is over. I was conditionalizing my happiness, that happiness could only exist after I did something or after I accomplished something. And fair to say you had a pretty good life. Married for, I guess, eight years? Seven, like a little bit over seven years. Yeah. Three and a half year old daughter. Yep. Seven month old daughter. Seven month old daughter. Good good career. Making Making more more money than I thought I would make out of college. Like if LinkedIn was a thing back then, because it wasn't in 2001, if you did some LinkedIn stalking, you'd be like, all right, pretty good life. It was pretty good. But my problem was, my pain point was I thought, well, leaders, here's the identity of leaders. Leaders have all the answers. So I thought I had to have all the answers at work. And I was the patriarch of the family. I was the dad. I was the husband. I was the provider. So I have to have all the answers at home. And so what I spent my spare time doing is pouring a whole bunch of stress inside of me. And then trying to pretend, sort of the whole fake it until you make it. Like, I'm all good. I'm good. We're good. Like, I'm for chill. We're all good. And at work and at home. But the stress was building up, was building up, was building up. I had some moments where it would flare up, that it came out. And I could tell when it was coming out. And I thought I was being really wise and holding that from view from others. But they probably could tell, especially the ones closest to me, like my wife and probably my daughters, even though they were really young. So I was doing a lot of that chasing and a lot of that Superman type of stuff that gets in the way of one, our success and good networking. So when I came out of the ICU, I made that commitment that life is going to be different. I'd stop chasing happiness. I would just be happy, start there. The doctor started to paint a picture of the rest of my life. They're like, listen, guys, gals like you with injuries like you are going to have a lifetime of pain and suffering. More surgeries, dependencies, limitations, you're probably not going to walk again. You're probably, well, you're not going to walk like you normally walk and you're probably not going to get back on the bike again. Wow. And how long did it take you to get back onto the bike? And then we'll go back into that. So I took from that point in time, 13 months with a really great push from my physical therapist. Really? So that was a big, like talk about like having the right person in your network, in your tribe, or like how I like to say it in your Peloton. So she totally pushed my buttons. So we, here we were in a rehab session. It's August 2002. I had gone through a major surgery, sort of a, hey, we're going to go into the surgery. And if we make any damage to your bypass graft to repair the femoral artery tear, we're going to have to amputate your leg above the knee in the surgery. We're not going to wake you up. So we're we, just going to make the decision, make the decision. So it took three months of consultation to do the surgery, but it was the surgery I needed to have in order to have enough flexion in my left leg to get back on the bike. And I was like, I signed that risk away. 
And so we were working on rehabbing that surgery. And my physical therapist, Laura, awesome person, still in my life. She was like, listen, it was a Friday. And she's like, you can't come back to rehab until you try to get back on the bike this weekend. And I was like, you, you can't say that. I'm the patient. I have healthcare, right? So like, and because I was really comfortable with like the rhythm of going to rehab. It was great. Like sort of supervised workout Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And so she pushed my buttons and I drove home that night and I complained to my wife. I was like, I can't believe Laura said that. She's so wrong. Like she can't do that. Right. And it's so important to have these people in your life that push you outside your comfort zone as cliche as that sounds. And then my wife said, well, when are we uh, going to get back on the bike? I go, well, we're going to go tomorrow. So that Saturday. Like by, literally on a bicycle or on, like on a bicycle. So I was on an exercise bike. Yeah, that's right. But was, she, yeah. she wanted to get me outside on my bike. And a lot of people say, well, that makes sense. You didn't want to go. You were scared. But here's the thing I was scared about. Not traffic. Because a lot of people are like, well, aren't you scared about riding in traffic? And I was like, that wasn't what I was scared about. What I was scared about was seeing how far I still had to go. It's sort of like if anyone's tried to lose weight, right? So you're trying to lose weight and you think you've lost some weight because the genes are fitting pretty good, right? But you don't want to get on the scale because the scale don't lie. <laughs> like, so yeah. you avoid the scale and you look in the mirror and you're like, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. The genes fit good, right? You tell yourself a story about how much progress you've made. And it's usually more progress than you really made. So I knew if I got on the bike, I would see how far I had come, but I would be really scared about how much further I had to go to get back to my identity that I once knew. Mm. And that's what I was scared about. So she's told me like, you can't come back. And I really wanted to come back because I really enjoyed physical rehab. And I got- You the, enjoyed the rehab? Yeah. I've never heard anybody say that before. Yeah, I love the whole <sighs> wow. push. I love the whole pain of it. I love the little bit of the temporary suffering. I wanted to, you know, as a cyclist, we sort of dig that stuff and like how much we can push our bodies. So uh -huh. I really, I love the community part of it because yeah. I was sort of like that guy. Like I was like, people knew who I was. It was familiar. It was friendly. It was all that stuff. And I remember doing some laps around an industrial park that's about five miles away from our house. And I did a few laps. Um, the girls and Lynn went to go get some coffee and hot cocoa, even though it was August. I'm not sure why they went for that in August. But I wanted my own space just to sort of think about it. The ride was a little rough. It was choppy because the accident has left my left leg a little bit shorter than my right. So my balance wasn't great, but I was getting bored. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go on the road. Like they're not here. I'm going to go back on the road. So I pull out of this industrial park. I swing a left on a road that's a common road for cyclists. I'm riding down the road and Adam, I could feel it coming up behind. I could just feel the vibration of the road and I looked behind and what did I see? A white SUV. <laughs> and I'm like, whether it's universe or God or whatever, yeah. I was like, you gotta be kidding. Like you have a really funny sense of humor. And I just held onto the handlebars. I think I closed my eyes, which I don't recommend if you ride your bike. I held my breath and I just hoped that the whole moment was going to be over. Cause the thing is that underlying fear that I thought I didn't have about being in traffic. Uh -huh. Well, that sort of came back up in that moment. I was like, Oh, you were also scared about that too. You were denying that, but really you sort of had a little bit of it. 
and it passed me. It was speeding. It was going about 20 miles over the speed limit too, based on how fast I thought it was going. And it, once it passed, I opened my eyes. I released the, my death grip of the handlebars. Yeah. And, and your knuckles probably turned white. Yeah, yeah. So it was like this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I realized like, all right, you can do this. I also knew like, yeah, you have a whole bunch of road in front of you to get back to whatever normal is. But the whole concept of like, I can do this. I can keep pedaling, if you will, and moving down the road. And it was just the right push that I needed at that given moment. So again, it's so important to have these type of people in your lives that know that moment where you need that push. So you mentioned the word Peloton. Yes. Can you elaborate? So yeah, so a Peloton, so when I go out now in 2019 and, and beyond to speak in the past, a lot of people come up to me and they're like, I'm about to buy one of your bikes or I have one of your bikes. <laughs> so they think of like the commercials, especially around the holidays of Peloton cycles, the spin bike. And I'm like, different company, right? So a Peloton by definition, for those that don't know, think the Tour de France and all those colorful guys in their colorful Lycra riding around France and the sunflowers and all that, that's called a Peloton. So it's a French, uh, French origin. And it basically means like a group of cyclists in a bike race. And the thing about a Peloton, and as you pass them, as you drive in your local area, they need vision, where are we going? They need communication, look out for road debris and stuff. They need collaboration because we're drafting off of each other. They certainly need trust because we're riding inches away from each other. We need leadership, right? Where are we going? They need all the, like, the wonderful qualities that you would need in a tribe or a network or a community. And I use it as a metaphor for tribes at work. But I came up with it back when I was in the hospital. There was a moment where I was in my hospital bed because I spent a whole bunch of time in my hospital bed and the doctors would come in and they would go through my charts and they would ask me questions and my therapy team was there and my doctors would be there and my wife would be there. And I looked around, I'm like, God, they're like my medical Peloton. They're like, <laughs> I'm riding behind them. They're trying to bring me back to normalcy again, whatever that is. And I go, Peloton, oh, that's a, so I had that seed planted with my former coach. I was like, that's a good name for a company. I wrote it down, Peloton Coaching. I just added the consulting. And what year was this that you so, wrote that down? So that was 2001. And then eventually I, I launched my business in 2014. So for me, a Peloton, like who's in your Peloton mm -hmm. is a real, obviously it's a connection to my story and story cycling and just my love of cycling. But it's understanding like who's in your Peloton. And then we all have different roles and we're all, we're all sort of helping each other out, especially through drafting and like, letting people know like pothole here or watch that car there like all that stuff we need that in today's society like we're better together in a peloton than and we're also faster literally in cycling than we're off by ourselves for the most part what makes you faster i'll tell you why i'm asking that so i think what makes you faster is one as, as a group in a peloton yeah so yeah. it's one it's the pure like i'd say physics of aerodynamics okay good. that's that, where i was going so yeah. that definitely helps right so there's just like car racing drafting tucking behind someone you spend about 20 percent less energy going the same speed so as you're taking turns you're sharing the load it's actually 23 percent. 20 really wow all yeah. right well i believe so i know that the same thing so if you ever notice that the way birds fly yes you know how they fly in yeah. a v mm -hmm. and then what happens is they've done studies 
And what happens when the bird at the front gets tired, it drops. They, yeah. It drops to the back because it takes that much more load off of them. Yep. So then they can, I've heard it with cars and I've also, now I'm hearing it, I'm assuming it's the same. I would say anything that related about pace or speed, there's a aerodynamic advantage, unless maybe like you're walking, right? Because the pace isn't, unless you're a race walker, mm-hmm. the pace isn't fast enough. So you go faster because aerodynamics, but I also think you go faster because as you're in the Peloton, you're sort of pushing each other a little bit. So you wanna stay in the group, right? So if you have a couple people, and obviously in a Peloton, you have people of different abilities, different fitness levels. And so you have a more of a mindset too of pushing each other to a higher pace, a higher speed, or to climb higher, you get more out of each other. And I think that's the same in life, right? Yeah. You, if you're in the right Peloton outside of your cycling life, it just helps you do better work and make more of an impact in the world and change more lives and all that stuff. So using that metaphor, tell me about the people that are in that make up the Peloton of your life outside of your family, because that's a given. And we yeah. can go back to that. And I know that your wife's amazing. Yeah, and we're going to talk, yeah. talk about her. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> but outside of that direct who are the people that make up the Peloton of your life? So I like to have the people in my Peloton, outside my wife and daughters and other family, are people that I can go to for clarity. So having a coach or a mentor in my life. Mm-hmm. So I can say, hey, I'm wrestling with this. They do a great job of hearing me out, asking some really good questions. I have people in my life where I know I could go to in a crisis. So when I have a really down moment, they're there for me. I know they're going to show up. I have people in my Peloton where I can celebrate. They're the first people that can like really celebrate with me. Mm. There are people that I go for comfort. So I try to make the Peloton as diverse as possible with a whole bunch of different people with different backgrounds. I think the best type of a Peloton is one that's as diverse as it possibly can be mm-hmm. with different perspectives. So they, they don't think exactly how I think. They don't see exactly what I see. And so they're pushing me and they're there. They're the type of people though, too, Adam, that they show up and they tell me what I need to hear as opposed to telling me what I want to hear. Yeah. And then are these people that have always been in your life or these are people that you've now been more conscious of since this, I was going to call it a tragedy, but I actually don't think it's a tragedy. No. So I don't call it a tragedy. I call it my last bad day. But in a lot of ways, my last bad day became one of my best days because it helped me really shift my perspective on almost every aspect of my life. So up to that moment, the whole idea of like a network and a tribe or a culture or a Peloton, I wasn't doing any of it. Hmm. I was just sort of like showing up, going through the motions, trying to like get through my days. I thought, hey, Michael, they pay you because it's stressful. That's why they pay you, right? <laughs> yeah. I was, and I was busy chasing happiness. So. Now, like the people on my Peloton today in 2019 are different than in 2001. So some people come in. There are some people, though, that have always been there. And I think will always be there. But I will move members of my Peloton around if I feel like our relationship isn't serving both of us equally well. Because I do think a lot of the focus, like on my book, as we mentioned offline, is like I'm on the cover, but I'm only here because of all the people around me. But I also think a good Peloton is one where it's just not a one-way street. You're giving back to your members of your Peloton. Mm -hmm. You're like, hey, how can I help you? Like, you're helping me. How can I help you? That's the whole idea of rotating and sharing the load and drafting and the whole thing. So I want to have people 
in my Peloton where I can help them and they're assisting me. And as a result, we're helping more people out there. Yeah. So yeah, so definitely there are some people that have come and gone, but there's also a core group, a core group of friends that I know are going to be there. And as I mentioned earlier, they're going to tell me what I need to hear as opposed to just telling me what I want to hear in that moment. So as you've built this Peloton, in what types of ways have you seen the benefits show up in your life? Well, I'd say one, career-wise, I'll give you a career story, because I really do think that my accident and my recovery and what I learned from it helped me get to my former executive position. So I had a person I would put in my Peloton who was my boss's boss. He was a mentor. And so here he is running a multi-billion dollar company. And he came to visit me every other weekend when I was in West Orange at a hospital. He gave his most precious resource, his time and his attention to me. And he would just sit with me and just talk to me about what was going on in my recovery and got to know me better. And I got to know him better. And then there came a moment in the summer of 2002 where there was a new position in my company. And I was reluctant to take it because I didn't see the whole vision of it, but he sat with me. He knew me well enough. He had built up trust and he gave me some guidance that that was going to be a great career move for me. And I bought into it. And I think that job in itself was a big catalyst to help me get to the executive suite. So there, like, and it's put me in a position now to help other executives because I can say I've been in the trenches. I've walked a mile in your shoes. So someone like Bill Sheldon, who I write about in my book, I have other people like David Kolb that I mentioned, the person that sort of sparked my interest in coaching. He's still in my Peloton. I still go to him for clarity and comfort and guidance. I have other coaches too. As a coach, I'm a big believer in the whole, Mm -hmm. the value of having these people that can help us see things that we don't necessarily see, help uncover our blind spots. So I have a few coaches I go to that popped into my life after I became an entrepreneur. So along the way, I've like gone forth and like picked out different people. One of the things my wife has often said to me is like, you have two superpowers or maybe three. Resilience, obviously through my story, that's easy. My ability to listen, to really listen, to connect and understand. And the other is just good people radar. Like I can, you know, the vibe that someone puts off. Like your vibe, right? So, and like, it's I just like, fool. but it's just like knowing the people around us. And when people tell us about them, do we pay attention mm-hmm. and making sure that I have good people that want to make the world a better world, better planet where we can benefit from each other in my life. I've been pretty lucky to have that type of I guess, superpower, if you will. Yeah. So what do you look for in that when you're meeting someone? How are you sizing people up? How much of it is gut versus, okay, let me ask some basic questions to see how they respond and let me go from there. Well, so intuition and gut definitely plays a part. Are you Malcolm Gladwell? Are you familiar with yeah, yeah. So, Blink? Yeah, you, yeah, okay, yeah. Right. So, so that's definitely part of it because I do think we communicate based on energy and vibe before we use any of our vocabulary. So just picking up on that. Body language. Body language. Just Are you familiar it, with Moravian's Law? No. Albert Moravian? No. Moravian, I think is, there, is no, it what's a that UCLA about? professor. He, it's a 738.55. 7% of communication is the words you use, oh, your yes. level of articulation. 38% is the tonality, your voice, yep. and how you're 
you know, do you speak really fast or do you yeah. slow and methodical? And then the 55% is your body language. Yeah. And if you go back into the, I'm so off on times, but let's call it thousands of years, the majority of communication was done via body language. Are, they, uh, are you going to be, am I a threat to you or am I yeah. an ally? Well, it's a friend or foe. Like, yeah. And for anyone that has a pet, our yeah. animals, like we have one of my dogs, her name is Hope. So she knows when a thunderstorm is coming before anyone else does because she'll run into my lap and she'll want to feel protected. So she can pick up on the change in the atmospheric energy, right? Mm -hmm. So animals can pick up on that like very easily. We can too when we have some awareness. So I definitely use that. But as I start having a conversation with someone, I'm really curious about what type of questions do they ask? And is it more of a me-centric type of question about them? Mm -hmm. Or are they asking questions about the other person, other people, about me? Are we starting the relationship like, hey, how are you doing? As opposed to like coming in with like more of a me-centric statement. So I definitely look for that in the early part early part of any type of new relationship or even just monitoring relationships as they go forward. Just because I just, you know, like you, I value the we over the me, right? So, and that's the whole spirit of being in a Peloton and being in a good network is that we're, we're so much better together. And I think we need this type of mentality or thinking more so now than ever before. Yes, we are super connected because of social media, but I also think we're like highly disconnected. Mm. And if we can bring more like real connectivity together, I think we're just going to, we're going to make better change for the planet that we need to make. Great point. I agree with everything you're saying. So you're doing coaching and you do mono a mono coaching and group. I do. Yeah. One-on-one. I do some group stuff, but a lot of my practice is good old fashioned one-on-one. And the level are, these are people that are C-suite executives or on the trajectory to that. So most of them are VP to C-suite. Okay, yeah. good. And then of those people, so I used to have a career coaching company a few years back, and what ended up happening where I ended up spending the majority of the time working with people, and I was dealing with people that were actually mainly in transition to get jobs, not life. I'm assuming you're doing both, but yeah. where I ended up spending the majority of time with people was with the relationships and the networking. I don't know, is that something that you've come across as well? And if so, I'd love to get your perspective on where you see, what are some of the biggest hurdles people have? What is their perception of the relationships? How important is it? I know I'm throwing a lot at yeah, you. Yeah, I know. Hopefully great, you can, great questions. Yeah. So I would say fundamentally, the main question I get is all about relationships, but more importantly, it's about conversation. So when we think about building a great Peloton or building a great network, as I talk to my clients, because they're all like, I want a strong team. I want a strong culture, right? So we start there. And I said, okay, well, what builds that? What are the building blocks of a strong culture? And we get to, well, we got to have strong relationships, right? We got to have trust. All right, what makes relationships strong? What are the building blocks for that? What's the golden thread that sort of is woven through every great relationship we have? And it's conversation. We have better conversations. We're going to have better relationships. We're going to have stronger networks and cultures and Pelotons. And the most important conversation we have every day is the one that we have with ourselves. So I do a lot of work with my executives on what's the story you're telling yourself about the people around you. I had one right before I came down to you today. I had a coaching session with one of my VPs, and he had a whole story about 
how others were viewing him. He didn't know if it was true or not, but he had this powerful story that was shaping how he was showing up. It was shaping the type of conversations he was having with others because he thought they were doing an end around on him and he was getting cut out, which didn't necessarily help his psyche. So one, we look at what kind of conversation are you having with yourself, but more importantly, well, as importantly, what kind of conversations are you having with other people? Do you listen to connect and understand or do you listen to reply? Because in most corporate settings, because most of my coaching is corporate, when you go into a conference room, we tend to listen to reply. We wait long enough for that other person to stop talking to get our point across. And if they don't buy into our point, we try to say it louder or faster or with more bravado to sort of dominate the conversation as opposed to listening to connect, understand, be curious asking questions for which we don't know the answer and try to co-create things. Now, some conversations are transactional, right? What type of milk do you want with your latte? Do you want fries with that? Did the expense report get done? Who's on this project team? Those are all important, but having some versatility or agility around, okay, I can do those for the right setting, but I also can sit with people and co-create and let them speak first. When we do that, you get the oxytocin firing up, Mm -hmm. you get the trust firing up, and you start to innovate more, right? Because you allow for some vulnerability in the room, you allow for some courage, you allow for some mindfulness, and those are all things that are needed if you really want to innovate and build a strong relationship, right? Through great conversations. Because now it's like, yeah, it just feels good when I'm talking to him or talking to her, and then the culture gets better. So the people that are coming to you, are they the ones that are seeking you out or how much of it is versus the corporation saying, hey, Michael, you could use some coaching and uh, here you go. So there are definitely cases where I have some corporations where like, hey, you should really get a coach. Yeah. But when I started my practice, what my philosophy on coaching is taking really good people and making them awesome sauce, making them great, as opposed to taking that person that's on the cusp of being managed out of the company and coaching is really just a legal defense strategy, Mm. right? For a wrongful termination. Like we're going to give you a coach and he's going to tell you that you stink as well and we're off scot-free. I don't take those assignments because I believe that people are good just as they show up and we're trying to make them better. We're trying to get close to mastery. So we start there like, okay, we might have like a change initiative that there's maybe they're struggling with, or maybe it's in front of them. Maybe we're prepping them for the next level job. Maybe they're just in that new job, or maybe their job is so complex. They just need someone in their corner, a coach, like a physical therapist to hold them accountable, strategize with them, game plan with them, and be that person that can sometimes just vent and work things out and put some action plans together. So that's where it starts. So I tend not to take anyone that's like sort of a performance improvement program type of folks because my philosophy on coaching is like, let's lift people up because I've had so many great coaches in my life and then something happens in adulthood when we get to be professional. We've had all these coaches who have shaped us and then we're like, yeah, we don't need a coach. Like when we get a job and we're like, well, the thinking doesn't align, right? So why then and why not now? I think it's, there's a mixture of like courage and vulnerability and the perception that you're not good enough and you're not smart enough. 
But I think some of the best people out there have coaches. 100%. Look at LeBron James. You bet. Look at all these other top performers. What's really interesting is what I found out is that people get coaches very early in their careers, i.e. mentors yes. to some degree. And then there's a shift, I don't know, let's call it 25 to maybe their 40s roughly. And I'm just, I don't have any science behind this. I'm just gauging where they kind of feel they don't need one. But what happens, or I shouldn't do it by age, it's once you get to a certain level and then you reflect you realize how important these, some of these people are and what they bring to your life. And I don't know what triggers that, if it's maybe just someone higher on the food chain that says, hey, listen, this is what it did for me, or if they just get to a certain point and they realize they become reflective. Do you have a thought? Yeah, so I have a theory on that, because okay. I think the view... Do you agree? Do you feel, or is yeah. that not... No, I yeah. totally agree. And I actually would sort of double down on the age. I think it's somewhere around 40. And maybe because 40 is like a big birthday for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But we're also at that point in our career, if we're moving on our way up, the view changes. So now we've gone through The this, lens they see things through or yeah, the or view just, of... What do you well, mean the view, I, I think a view on multiple things. Uh, how they see themselves, how they see their colleagues, because the number of colleagues that they have have now just gotten smaller, right? The whole adage is lonely at the top. Yeah. Well, it's lonely at the top for a reason because there are fewer people up there. Mm -hmm. So now they're in a special section of the building, right? They're with all the other executives. They used to be amongst the people. And the, the Talking about the man. Talking about the man. And now they're the man or the, the woman. But the whole time as they've grown their career, even through school, right? We've been promoted. We've been rewarded by having the right answer. So you start off in your early 20s and you have the right answer and you get more responsibility and then you have more right answers and you get more responsibility and you go and you go and you go and you're moving your career forward sometimes you're chasing happiness like a guy i once knew mm -hmm. and you get to this high level and you're like oh my god and you also realize that the reason you're in that job is because the guy that had the job the last time he didn't last long mm. so now you're 40 42 38 whatever around that age and you're like i've reached a level of my career that I didn't necessarily think I was going to make it to. And now I got, what, 20 more years? I'm only at halftime. And the view just got a lot different. We, again, another adage, like uh, more levels, more devils. Like the, as a job goes- I never goes, heard that. That's yeah. a good one. So as you go up, you're thinking, oh, like- I write the, that down. So this, this is what I was thinking before my accident, right? I'll be happy when I get promoted. And then you get promoted and you realize, well, they pay you more because the job's more complex. Mm -hmm. The challenges are deeper and more intense. And you have to start thinking about the future. You move from a tactical executioner mm -hmm. of how to win today. Now they start talking to you about strategy. Now you got to predict where are you going to be in six months, in 18 months, in five years. And you're like, I don't even know where I'm going to be next week. So... I think there's like the total lens of how they see things changes, I think, on multiple levels. But I think the job gets a little bit like, oh, wow. And this is, a, I think, one from Marshall Goldsmith. Uh, what got you here ain't going to get you there. That's one of his bestsellers. And I think they realize that like, well, I've been really successful. I'm pretty young. And now I have to learn how to use new tools. And I need some help. And do you have any thoughts on the future of work and agility? Are these terms that you're familiar with? Yeah, or, agility and versatility. I think we're going to have to adopt even more of it. I think we're all going to have to take a lot of yoga because I think what's cool about living today is that there's not one way of getting things done on so many topics. Like 
to talk about nutrition, I can look at like top athletes and just top performing people. And one has like eats carbohydrates and one does paleo and one does keto and one does low sugar and, or no sugar or high sugar. And when we talked about my Morocco trip before we went on air, they're eating carbohydrates at every meal, yeah, right? Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of different ways to sort of skin the cat, if you will. And there, I think there's a lot of different ways to sort of run a business. And there's not just one way. And I think if we allow ourselves at least some openness to experiment, try things out, not necessarily go for the absolute. We live sometimes in a very binary world where this is the right answer. And I think that's a little bit of the danger. I think we have a lot of different options, but to get attention in this economy, a lot of people talk about their option that they love as the option. Mm. And I would much rather have folks show up and say, there are multiple options. Let's have a conversation about which option is best for us. So regarding coaching, is there... Do you have an optimal amount of time that you like to work with people? Because you need to give your plan. Like you need to meet them. You need to do some kind of assessment. You yeah. need to see where they want to go. You then need to map it out. And then you need to hold them accountable. And then there's this whole process. Do you have an optimal amount of time that you like to work with someone, at least for the intensity part? And obviously there's, yeah. you know, you got to stick with them for a little bit or at least find them an accountability partner. So I tend to start off with six months because I think six months, and I'm a big believer in cadence. So I'd rather talk every week because yeah. a lot of leaders, you're serving, you're serving, you're serving, you're serving, and you're talking about and worrying about everyone else in your life. And you're not necessarily spending enough time on self-care in your own growth and development. And I think leaders need to, one, role model that, but also they need that to stay relevant as you go forward. So an hour a week on themselves, I think is a really healthy thing for any leader to do. So I start off with six months. We aim for a session a week, every week, knowing That's that- a lot. Yeah, so it's, there's a lot of intensity up front, knowing though this, my executives, we tend to go from four to three because of schedules. Yeah. But I'd rather do that than start with three or two and go to two or one because then you lose a little bit of the rhythm. Yeah, momentum too. And yeah. then about a, a lot of times, most of my clients will extend to a year, maybe even 18 months. And then I'll say, hey, time to fish on your own. I don't want coaching to become a crutch. Because I just like training wheels may not be the best analogy, but we're going to learn how to ride a bike. And then you're going to have to go off and ride your bike on your own and try it out. Maybe you'll fall and stumble. You'll get yourself back up again and keep pedaling. And then if something changes within your career or within your life, we can come back to coaching. But I always love a little bit of a break just to allow them to sort of go off on their own. Do you kind of hand the baton and ask them to, like, again, getting back to that accountability partner that I talked to, do you have them try to find somebody to keep them, hold them, keep so, the standard high? Yeah. So one of my clients has internal coaches. So the baton gets passed to internal coaches. If they don't have a mentor, I make sure that they have a mentor. If they don't have an accountability partner, I ask them to have an accountability partner. Do you have them write it down? Do you yeah. Do well, write it down. I want to know who it is. And I also try to help them develop that rhythm with a mentor and accountability partner as we're coaching. So I don't want to leave it to the last thing. It's like, hey, end of engagement, let's work on the stuff. Let's work on having some overlap as we go forward. What's the biggest challenge that you run into with your clients? Or what are their biggest challenges, I should say, that you come across? Are you seeing anything 
consistently pop up? I would say it's dealing with more of the pressure of the job and knowing that they're responsible for so many people. And for the ones that have a lot of care, and I'm really selective with who I work with, they want to do right. Again, they want to have the right answer. And sometimes there isn't a right answer, but they want to contribute. It comes from a really good spot in their heart. And I think that pressure can get to them. Like, I don't want to goof up. Maybe sometimes for themselves and your own ego and your own identity. But also, I have families out there. Every employee is tied to their own Peloton, their own family structure. People depend on this job. So I want to make sure that we're doing right by them, right by our customers, because there's a lot riding on the decisions I make. So some of it is the pressure and really not having with a coach, they have someone, but sometimes they don't necessarily have the right people in their Peloton to say, hey, I really need to talk to you about this. I need to talk to someone about this. Because in the executive suite, if you start talking about the moments where you're like, you're feeling a little vulnerable, you're feeling like you don't necessarily have the courage, you're feeling a little like worried, a lot of people don't want to talk about that with their colleagues. They're like, oh, you got to buck up. You got to just find a way through it. You got to force your way through it. And that's not what they need right then. They need someone to say, hey, I get it. I understand. That's natural. There's a lot riding on this. Certainly there's some worry, maybe some anxiety. Let's talk about how we get through that. So I haven't checked in the past couple of months, but roughly my audience was, let's call it 25 to 55, 55% male, 45% women, people that are ambitious yep. for the most part, people that are really looking to make themselves better. That's like, I would say the majority, if you're listening to this, that's your most likely, I feel very confident that you fall into that bucket. So for those that are kind of fall into that bucket, maybe a decent amount of them, yeah, they can afford their own coach or maybe their corporation, some work for smaller companies, all that. So maybe they can't have a corporation pay for them right now. What is it that you would recommend that they do? What advice would you give in terms of just life planning, identifying mentors, finding the coach, and getting onto the path to be able to engage someone like yourself? So I would start with understanding like who they want in their Peloton, that mixture of diversity, and folks can get a little sheet that I have that we can make available. Is that something we can yeah, do? Yeah, we it? can put yeah, we can put it into like your show, show notes, notes or something okay. like that. And I would start there and along the way ha- make sure that you have a mentor or two that's outside your functional area and maybe even outside your company or both as a way to start and know this as a mentee in that mentor mentee relationship, you're driving the agenda. Because I think sometimes mentees show up and say, a mentor, tell me the wisdom, almost like Yoda and Luke Skywalker. And, and yeah, Yoda is the guide and Luke is the hero. But the mentee does need to drive the agenda to say, hey, here's what I want to talk to you about. I'm really glad you said that. We wrote an article that was a big portion yeah. of what that is because most people don't understand just that point. Yeah, and that's the key to a healthy mentor-mentee relationship, at least one of the cornerstones. And you also want to develop, like, how is this going to run? Like, how often are we going to meet? What's the frequency? All that jazz. What are we going to talk about? What's fair game? What's not fair game? So I'd start there just to, one, it broadens your network. It broadens your Peloton. And then you start to see things a little bit differently. Because I'm a big believer that the people in your life are there to help you shift your perspective ever so slightly. Like, these small shifts can matter so much. Like, those little moves. Mm -hmm. So finding those people and also 
as you grow, finding people you could mentor. Because at any level, there are people that we want to look up at as mentors that can help us and we can help them. And anyone that I've done any mentoring with, and I do a lot of mentoring for the Healthcare Business Women's Association, which is a women's advocacy group within healthcare, the mentors always say, I get so much out of mentoring. And so I would say, regardless of what level you're at, you can also mentor people, right? right? So you can be a mentee and you can also be a mentor. So I would encourage people to do both because now you're giving and you're also receiving and that's just good mojo to put out there in the world. Yeah, that's great. And then one point that I think is important is to try to find value that you can offer to the person that's giving to you. Yes. To not just make it a one way. Yes. Everything. I I think every great relationship is a two way street. Because if you're just pulling, if you're just sucking the energy out of the relationship, then that relationship is going to run out of gas sooner rather than later. So in any type of relationship, whether it's mentor, mentee, or just like a relationship, what are you giving to it? And what are you pulling from it? And being really intentional and mindful about what you're doing and how you're working your relationship. Yeah, that's great. That's great advice. So every July, well, first there were a couple things before we we wrap up. A couple things. First, this book. Give us a quick synopsis of the book. So Shift is about my last bad day in recovery. It's about the value of community, the value of resilience, and the power of mindset. And so in it, I walk the reader through my experience and my story. But you hear some wonderful things from my wife and other members Mm -hmm. of my Peloton along the way. And in the last chapter, I share 20 ways of being, because back before my last bad day, I was a really good human doer, but I wasn't necessarily the most awesome human being. So I give 20 ways of being as we close out, because I really do think like in today's world, if we could just be, we'll start there. That can be the catalyst of doing better work. And what's really cool, Adam, about the book is when I decided to write it, and I was reluctant to write it at first. A lot of people told me I should. I was like, I don't know. I'm not much of a writer. I have like post-traumatic seventh grade English disorder, all that stuff. And we decided to make it past fifth. Yeah, so so seventh grade was really rough for me. So we decided to give the proceeds of the book to World Bicycle Relief, and they help girls conquer the challenge of distance in countries like Kenya, Malawi, and Zaire by giving them mobility. So back in the day, like before my accident, I took my health for granted. I also took my mobility for granted. So when you read it, you're going to get some pearls in terms of how to live a better life, not only at work, but just life. And you're going to change someone else's life by giving them a bicycle. And they stay in school longer. They graduate. They marry later. They have smaller families. But more importantly, they have economic vitality and independence. And then they can put some good out into the world. That's fantastic. And then talk to me every July, something happens. What's going on this July? So July 11th, 2019, my last bad day celebrates its 18th birthday. It becomes an adult, at least here in the States. And so in 2017, I released my book. Last year, I put together my Leadership Academy. This year, I want to start helping a million people have their last bad day. Because when I do my talk, so many people come up to me and say, hey, you know what? My last bad day was September 19th or April 5th or March 30th. And they share the story of their last bad day. And for me, the movement is not about like getting hit by a car 
or maybe a bad diagnosis or a breakup in a relationship. And it's certainly not about woo-woo, hippy-dippy, unicorns and rainbows. It's that day when you decide to live life differently. Do you have them write it down somewhere, get a tattoo? What do they do? Anything so, you encourage? Um, do you have it tattoos, anywhere? I, I guess tattoos are optional. Uh -huh. But what I recommend, so part of it is going to be showcasing all the wonderful last bad day stories that are in our communities. So I have this thing where I think we have too much of a fascination with celebrity in our country. And when I go around the country, I meet some wonderful people. They're just in our neighborhoods. They're in our grocery stores. They're in our community centers with some unbelievable stories of resilience and community and mindset. And I want to give them a platform to share their story. So part of the initiative is going to be a YouTube channel, a Facebook group on my website where you're going to be able to see a whole bunch of wonderful last bad day stories so we can get inspired by people like us Fantastic. as opposed to just be inspired by celebrities, which are highly inspiring. They're, they're great. Like I get inspired by Oprah, but Oprah's definition of success is way out there. I want to share the stories of the, someone that had a bad day, decided that they didn't want their bad moments to turn into anything more than just a bad moment and live their life with intentionality, with mindfulness, with gratitude, generosity, vulnerability, courage, all these wonderful characteristics and bring them to life. So that'll be part of it is showcasing all those wonderful people and people can also pick up their last bad day game plan. This is sort of my playbook on trying to help people sort of spark that last bad day if you haven't had it yet and some other content that will come forward during the course of the year. That's exciting. Before I let you go, what I like to ask, I got all these random questions. Right. Pick a number between one and 59. So I'm gonna pick 37, because that's my wife's favorite number. All right, good stuff. Ode to the Misses. Yes. 37, well, I wanna know why, first of all, 37 is her favorite number. Well, so there's, when you talk to her, and like people read the book, they're gonna learn a lot about her, because she's pretty awesome. Uh -huh. She's actually, she's very awesome. So 37, it like three and seven, you get to 10, uh -huh. but it's not five and five. It's not four and six. It's just slightly off the middle. Mm -hmm. And so there's something like really like sort of magical. There is prime numbers, right? So it's not like, yeah. you know, four. You know, a lot of four has gone into this. Well, as much like we talked about your logo, yeah. which is, again, awesome sauce. A lot of thought went into your logo. A lot of thought went into her favorite number. So it was her real favorite number 10 and she made it. No, it's, it's, 30, it's 37, but okay. not 73. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why, but that's the way. Like my favorite number is four, but I'm going with her because as we record this, we're only a few days away from our 25th wedding anniversary. Wow. So it is an ode to my wonderful wow. wife. Okay. Well, ready? Here we go. Yes. 37. What have you always wanted to try? One of the things I want to try to do is learn how to sing. Interesting. I love music. We, we talked, talked about, about this. Yeah, I yeah. love concerts. That moment right before like the band goes on stage is magical to me. That energy of the arena. And I can't sing. Like we would watch American Idol when American Idol was a little bit more popular with the girls. And we'd watch it as a family, like a lot of families would do. And we'd go through the list in the early rounds of the people that we'd watch that can't sing at all, right? And that's why we watch. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. what about that person? Does daddy sing better than that person? And my girls would be like, no, 
they're better than you. You're gonna love the and, truth. And so it's like the truth of like someone who is like seven and eight, nine, ten, that age, especially as teenagers too, for anyone that has teenagers. So I can't sing. So one of these days, I'm gonna try to learn how to sing. So I'll tell you something really interesting about that because oh, I probably shouldn't be saying this on the air, but my daughter, my oldest daughter, couldn't sing either at okay. all. Horrible. She wanted to sing though. All right. So we what did you do? Out of, out of courtesy of a parent, we said, listen, you want to try something? We're going to support that and we'll give it a shot. Yeah. So we sent her for lessons. All right. And, oh man, I really shouldn't be sharing this. So she had a recital that was coming up. It was okay. after a couple of months and, and we really didn't pay much attention. We're like, ah, oh, she's going for lessons. It's nice, blah, blah, blah. This yeah. is at the time she was, I guess, probably 10 or 11 years old. And when I tell you, she's probably, she was just as bad as me and I'm horrible. Okay. No tone. Yeah, so no, I'm all over the place. Yeah, none, yeah. none whatsoever. So we rushed back one time. She had a recital. I'll never forget this. This was Sunday. It was a Sunday night. We rushed back. We were on a way for the weekend. We weren't even going to go to the recital. That's how bad of parents we are, first of all. Wow, okay. <laughs> and then that's, like, that's we're huge. like, all right, but she wanted to do it. Yeah, so of yeah, course yeah. we go. So we go there. We actually got there late, which is very disrespectful. I apologize to all the parents and all the, my daughter gets there just in time. She hasn't rehearsed. She hasn't done anything. She gets right up on the stage, and she crushed it. Really? She, oh, that's awesome. She absolutely crushed it. She was fantastic. People are looking around and like, wow, she's so good. No one was more surprised than my wife and I. Yeah. So afterwards, people are coming up to us, this and that. Turns out we pulled the coach aside, and we're like, what did you do? Yeah. Like, how did you do now, it? Yeah. And, yeah. Now, and now my daughter's a fantastic singer. Wow. She's even writing her own music. Really? And and I'm not being the partial. Yeah. Yeah. Dad yeah, yeah. No, you're just because, like, it's facts, man. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, so, anyways, what the coach said is that anybody can sing. It's a matter, and it's almost like you're coaching. Yeah. You know, you need to extrapolate the strength. So it's finding, you know, are you a baritone? Are you a soprano? Yeah. Are you, and then what is your style? So it's being able to extrapolate positive. Okay. So there's hope. There, there's, there's hope. I do rock the car. Like I'm more of a car singer. <laughs> yeah. right. So if anyone's in the city, New York City or New Jersey, and you pull up to a red light, you see a guy trying to belt it out at a stoplight, it could be me. Could be you. So before we go, I am going to do one more as an ode to you is because you, in the spirit of... You gave your question to your wife in terms of the number. Yes. So I'd like to honor you for doing that. And you said your favorite number was four. Four. So let's go to number right. four. What's at the top of your accomplishment list for today? And is there anything that I can do to help make that happen? So for today. So yeah, that I for, today. To, for today. I would say this, and I told you this before we started. I'm a fan of the show. And so the fact that I'm here today in your studio recording is a huge win. It's like really great way to start the week. It's where we're here on a Monday. So the fact that I reached out, we did a little networking to yeah. like get introduced from a Someone that's been on your show before, Michelle Lederman, who is awesome and does some yeah, great Michelle stuff. She's been on your show twice. So that in a way is like the power of networking that we're now together and we had a chance to like grab some coffee beforehand. And so, yeah, I would say 
so far today, the day is awesome sauce because of that. That's a beautiful thing. But is there anything from a business standpoint, is there anything that I can try to do that could benefit? It doesn't have to be business. It could, yeah. be, could be your daughters. You've got a daughter that's graduating. You've got a daughter, you know, there's, yeah. there's so many. What a lot of people don't realize when it comes to networking, and this is what gets lost, and this is what I noticed with yeah. uh, a lot of executives, is they just think it's, you know, there's value. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much money you're making. It doesn't matter where you are in the stratosphere of life. We all need something. It doesn't matter what. And at certain points, it's, it could be a babysitter. It could be a doctor. It could be something yeah. in life. And even if I can't directly give you that answer, I promise that I can at least get you closer. I can get you a rung up the ladder higher, you know, I love to it. there. No, that's, that's so awesome. And you're right. So many executives sort of lose that. I would say this encouragement, right? The year in a big, hairy, audacious goal and helping a million people have their last bad day. I know this going in. There'll be moments where I'll have some self-doubt. There'll be moments where I might trip and stumble. So if I can lean on you yep. to give me more encouragement to keep going. You've got my word. Because like helping people find that day where they want to live life differently, where there's that connection. It's a great goal. The power of it and the power of connection, which fits perfectly with what you guys do here. I think we can slowly but surely change the world. One patient, not one patient, but one. <laughs> one million. <laughs> yeah. So one million people, one person at a time, right? Because if you change a life anywhere, you change lives everywhere. And so I'm going to ask you for encouragement as we go forward. Perfect. Done. That awesome. sounds beautiful. Then. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Adam. I appreciate thanks you coming for, on. This was yeah. great. No, it was awesome. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> great. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast. If you or someone you know is looking for a career change, building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to NetworkWise.com to gain access to a plethora of resources to help you build your networking skills and community. Those who are ambitious will network. The ones who succeed will network wise.